0: Peter said to Jesus, "'Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tents, three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elias.' For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. There was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, "'This is my beloved son, hear him.' And suddenly when they had looked round about, they saw no man anymore, save Jesus only with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen, till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. They asked him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elias must first come? And he answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first and restoreth all things." And how it is written of the son of man that he must suffer many things and be said at nought, cast out, not wanted. But I see unto you that Elias is indeed come. They have done unto him whatsoever they listed, as it is written of him. When he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed. And running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, What question ye with them?
1: Our name, the unchanging word, reflects the fact that the eternal word of God is never changed and never will. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Life begins at Calvary, there my Savior died. He took my place and by His grace came with me. Our study in the Gospel of Mark resumes in chapter 9, verse 10, with Mark writing about Jesus and his three disciples, Peter, James, and John, as they were coming down from the mountain where our Lord Jesus had been transfigured before them. Now, these three disciples had a question for Jesus because he had told them that the Son of Man was to rise again. And they were wondering what rising from the dead meant. But they asked him about Elijah, saying, Isn't Elijah supposed to come first? And Jesus said, Yes. And yet, how is it that the Son of Man must suffer? And here, once again, our Lord Jesus turns their focus to his coming death and resurrection before telling them that Elijah had already come in the person of John the Baptist. Here is Dr. Mitchell on the Unchanging Word Bible Broadcast. Let's turn to Mark chapter 9, verse 10.
0: Good day, friends. Again, it is our joy and privilege to come to you. And the great purpose of our coming to you day after day is to in some way communicate to you something of the wonderful grace of God. Especially as we take up this gospel through Mark, we see something of the tenderness and the compassion and the love of the Savior, For men and women. And when we come to this ninth chapter, where we are discussing together the transfiguration of Christ, we're beginning to see something of the purpose and program of God, why the Savior came to the earth in the first place. Now, in the transfiguration of Christ, which we've had in these past two or three lessons, we were dealing there, remember, with the doctrine of the transfiguration, which was the coming of the Lord in glory. Uh, John says we were eyewitnesses, Peter said, pardon me, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Well, Peter, when did you see him in his majesty? When we were with him in the Holy Mount. I'm quoting Second Peter chapter 1. And then John could say in John 1, 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. When did Peter and John see him in his glory? Only one place on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, Lord was transfigured before them. And then we found the time of the transfiguration was after six days. And after six days, six days of silence, six days with nothing mentioned. After the manifestation, or shall I say, the revelation of his person, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. The revelation of his program, he's going to suffer and die for the first time, the Lord spoke of this. Amazing thing, is it not? Right, right after the announcement of his suffering and death, he went up unto the mountain and was transfigured. The glory of God upon him and in him and through him. Of course, there's a premature picture of the coming of the Lord in glory. When's he going to come after six days? We've had, we've had six days of trouble, of sorrow, of death, of war. You name it, we've had it. He's going to come, set things right. Then we had the theme of the Transfiguration, which was the suffering and death of our Savior. Now you have to go to, to Luke's Gospel, chapter nine, to find that. They spake Moses and Elijah and our Savior were together, and they spake together concerning his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. They didn't talk about. They didn't talk about the great miracles of Moses. Or of Elijah. They didn't speak of spectacular things as such, as doing, uh, splitting of the rock and the splitting of the Red Sea or the closing of the heavens and so on. They spake concerning his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. And you remember we were saying, as we studied it together, our Lord, could, I'm quoting from John chapter 10, our Lord said, No man taketh my life from me. I have power to lay it down, I have power to take it again. And then you had the, the test of the transfiguration, which was the, the character of our Savior. Only one who was sinless and absolute in righteousness could have been transfigured. Our friend, I'll tell you, he's a real Savior. And yet the amazing thing to me was that when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration, transfigured the holy righteous Son of God and talking with Moses, the great lawgiver, and Elijah representing the prophets, their theme was his suffering. Why should he talk about the suffering right in the very midst of glory? Because the kingdom of God will not be manifested without suffering. The cross must come before the throne. We're going to see that later on in the chapter. But I'm just re- I'm reviewing what we've already said. Now for a few moments may I speak concerning the practical side of the transfiguration. And you remember what Peter said in verse 5 of chapter 9? Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tents, three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. There was a cloud that overshadowed them, And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. And suddenly, when they had looked round about, they saw no man anymore, save Jesus only, with themselves. Now let me just stop here for a moment. It's good for us to be here. I should say so. I should say so. Why not? Look at the company they were in. There was the Father who spoke. There was the Son who was glorified. There was Moses, the great lawgiver. There was Elijah, the great prophet. I tell you, my friend, what a company to be in. Why not make three tabernacles? It's good to stay up here. No, no, it's not God's purpose for him to be glorified with his people yet. While he yet spake these words there came a voice out of the glory saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. Remember this. They didn't talk about their spectacular miracles. I'm repeating something. My Son has come. The great desire of God the Father is that you and I should hear What the Son has to say, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. Never mind Moses. Never mind Elijah. Never mind anybody else. You see. You remember at the baptism of our Savior in Matthew chapter 3 and Luke chapter 3, when John the Baptist baptized our Savior, you remember there came a voice out of the glory saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Here you have the Father's testimony to the character, to the light, to the submission, the obedience of his Son. God saying, this is my Son in whom I am well, well pleased. Now on the Mount of Transfiguration, he adds two words. He not only so said, this is my beloved Son, but he also said, hear him. You hear what he has to say. Now, remember one of the first things he did before he went to the mountain was to teach his disciples he must suffer. He must die. He must be raised again from the dead. One of the first things the Lord said coming down the mountainside was what? That he was going to be killed. he's going to be raised from the dead. Isn't that amazing? Let's see... We are not to listen to the philosophies of man so much or to the organizations and powers and schemes of men. We are to hear him. Do you? I'm making it personal. Do you hear him? Is your are your ears, is your heart, is your mind attuned to him? You remember in Colossians chapter 1, you have where the Apostle Paul speaks of the fact that, the, that God has made his Son to be the preeminent one, that in all things he should have the preeminence. So I'm not surprised when you come down to verse 8. They saw no man save Jesus only. Their eyes were fixed upon him. Christ became the center. Not Peter, not John, not James, you see, if Peter had been watching how John was taking it, he would never have seen the Lord, vice versa. <clears throat> they saw no man save Jesus only. You know, I I wonder if our eyes, if our hearts ascended upon the Savior. I can't help but think of those words of Paul in Philippians chapter 1, 20 and 21, when he said that Christ be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or whether it be by death. For to me to live, Christ. To die is to be with Christ. What's the difference, says Paul, whether I live or whether I die, as long as Christ be magnified in my body? They saw no man save Jesus only. I think this is one of the greatest needs among God's people. This practical thing. It's so easy for one to become occupied with God's servants. It's so easy to be occupied with some organization. And I'm not opposed to organizations, and I'm not opposed to people. I love people. But the moment you put one of them on the throne of your your love, of your trust, and not Jesus, you're going to get into trouble. They saw no man save Jesus only. Then coming down the mountain, he spake to them of his resurrection. Verse 9, And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen, till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean coming down the mountain, out of the place of glory, he spoke of the fact that he must be going to be raised from the dead. I'm not surprised that these disciples couldn't understand it. In fact, they never did understand it until after the resurrection of Christ. There are thousands of people today who don't understand it and don't believe it. I know that physical resurrection is contrary To human experience. I know that. But let me remind you again of Romans 1-4. God marked Jesus Christ out from everybody else by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why do you think I put my trust in the Savior? Why do you believe? Why do you think I believe that Jesus Christ is the only Savior, that He has put away our sins, that He has fit us for the presence of God, (laughs) The resurrection from the dead, this is God's personal proof. And I'm pressing down upon this again to your own heart and mind. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was the great message of the early church. It's the foundational message. If he's not raised from the dead, we haven't anything. We haven't anything. We are yet in our sins. As Paul the Apostle wrote in Corinthians 15... Uh, If he hasn't been raised from the dead, then we are yet in our sins. We are of all men most miserable. Oh, how glad I am for the next verse. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. And God marked him out from everybody else by the resurrection from the dead. It struck me very forcibly that the last thing he taught them and the preceding chapter was, he's going to suffer. For the first time, he announced he's going to suffer. He's going to be killed. He's going to be buried. He's going to be raised again from the dead. And they didn't know what he was talking about. He's transfigured in the glory of God. Comes right down. On the way down, he reminds them again, he's going to be raised from the dead. And I read, they questioned one with another. Peter, James, and John questioned one another what does he mean about this rising from the dead? This is one truth that all hell hates. Because the resurrection of Christ is the guarantee of the eternal judgment of the forces of hell. It's also, by the way, the guarantee of judgment to everyone out of Christ. You have that in Acts seventeen thirty one. And yet it's the guarantee of our salvation. In the Saviour. Now there's a question raised as they come down the mountain side. Verse eleven, they asked him, saying, "Why say the scribes that Elias must first come?" And he answered and told them, "Elias verily cometh first, and restoreth all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things, and be set at nought, cast out, not wanted, but I say unto you that Elias is indeed come." They have done unto him whatsoever they listed, as it is written of him. Now, no question, he's talking about John the Baptist. Now, you remember, in Malachi chapter four, verse five, before the Lord comes to reign, Elijah must come. Now, the disciples knew that, and the disciples had been with the Lord up on the mountain; they had a little taste of the glory of the kingdom and the power of the kingdom. But coming down the mountain, he said, I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised from the dead. See, they couldn't, they couldn't uh, put these two things together. Here he is glorified, talking with Moses and Elijah. God the Father speaks out of heaven. This is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. Peter said, Lord, it's so wonderful. Let's make three tabernacles. Now he said, I'm going to die again. See? I'm going to be raised from the dead. No wonder they were confused. Oh, but listen, before Messiah comes to reign, Elijah must come. Yes, I, they quoted from Malachi chapter 4. You remember in Luke chapter 1, verse 17? I read there that, that the Spirit of God was going to be on John the Baptist from his mother's womb. It's going to come in the power of Elijah. You remember in John chapter 1, running from about verse 21 on there, 20, 21, 22, you have where the Jewish committee came to John and said, Tell us plainly, who are you? And he confessed and denied not and said, I am not the Christ. Art thou Elijah? I am not. Art thou that prophet? Speaking of our Savior, no, I'm only the voice of one crying in the wilderness. But John came in the power of Elijah. And this is what the Lord here is talking about. Talking about John the Baptist who came in the power of Elijah and they've done to him what they listed. Herod took him and beheaded him. We had that in the preceding chapter, you see. Elijah must first come, you see. But listen, before, before He can come in his glory. He must first of all come into the valley of sinful humanity. Our Lord left the Mount of Transfiguration and came down into the valley where a boy was possessed by demons, where people were all confused, where the whole generation was full of unbelief. You remember in Philippians chapter 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not a thing to be held on to or grasped after, but he made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a slave, was found in fashion as a man, humbled himself to death, even the death of the cross. And our Lord came into the valley from the Mount of transfiguration. What a picture of our Lord leaving the glory taking his place into humanity. He came right down where you and I were. He came down to this valley here in this connection. What do you find when he came into the valley? Critical scribes, religious leaders who were critical of the disciples. You find the disciples not having faith to cast out demons, the unbelieving disciples. You've got a desperate father whose boy was demon-possessed. The Lord left the glory of the mountain and came down into the valley of humiliation for the people in sin. Religiously critical. Unbelieving disciples. A desperate father. A demon-possessed boy. Do you notice verse 15? When he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them more than likely criticizing them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed. And running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, What question ye with them? Then you have the testimony of the Father. Let me just stop here a moment. Look at this verse 15. The crowd were amazed when they saw him. I wonder why they were amazed. Do you ever stop to think? They were amazed when they saw him. Would it be possible that something of the glory was still on his face when he came down from the mountainside? Do you ever think of it? Do you remember in Exodus chapter 34, when Moses was given the law, he was 40 days in the presence of God. When he came down, they had to put a veil on his face. And I read there that Moses wist not that his face shone and the people couldn't gaze upon Moses till they put a veil over his face. Here is the son of God who has been on the mountaintop. Shekinah glory has been upon him. And he came right down to the valley of humiliation. When he came down, the people were amazed when they saw him. And I'm of the persuasion that when he came down, something of the glory of God was shining upon the face of our Savior. And they were amazed. And running to him, they saluted him. They ran to him. People in their troubles, people in unbelief, people in their sorrow, they all ran to him. The disciples couldn't do anything. The scribes, the religious leaders, they couldn't do anything. They ran to him. Ah, isn't it wonderful to have someone to whom you can run? It may be I'm talking to someone today, and you've you've ran to this one and you've ran to that one for help. You ran to preachers possibly, or you ran to this philosophy or that philosophy, and you're still not helped. You see, I've got a heart need, Mister Mitchell. I've got a heart need. I need peace. I need rest. I need forgiveness. Well, my friend, where can you find it? Do what these people did. They ran to Jesus. It is true. They were amazed at what they saw, but they ran to him. Where else can they run? Who else can meet their need? Who else can meet your need? Oh, I just plead with your heart today as we take up this next, this next lesson of our Savior as he follows on down through. Will, you, will your heart be open to see him? Do you be able to say to see, say no man, see no man, save Jesus only? Because he's the only one who can meet your personal need. And thank God he can. I'm glad he came down from the mountain. I'm glad he left the glory and took his place in humanity. What for? To save you, to save me, to deliver us from the powers of darkness, from the slavery of sin, and from the fear of death. And he can do that the moment anybody puts their trust in him, to receive him, to believe in him, to put their trust in him as their own personal saviour. It's a matter between you and him. And remember he said he that cometh to me I will in no wise under any consideration turn him away or cast him out. He's waiting for you to come. He's the only one who can meet your need. That's why he left the glory just because of you and just because of me. Now next session we'll see how he he makes it possible for men like you and me to be transformed and be like unto him. Now, the Lord bless you today for his precious namesake.
1: Great is thy faithfulness, Lord unto thee. Thank you for listening to the Unchanging Word Radio Bible Study today. We trust that your hearts have been blessed and encouraged through the study of God's Word. And so until next time, this is the Unchanging Word Radio Broadcast.